paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. I'm Leo, you must be Nancy. May I come inside? Yes. So I've made a list of things that I'd like to get through. Number one, uh, I perform oral sex on you. Number two, you perform oral sex on me. Number three, we do a 69, if that's what it's still called. Um, four, me on top. Five, doggy style. Well, that all sounds very achievable. Have I booked enough time? You, you want to do it all today? <laughs> yes, no. I've never had an orgasm. There are nuns out there with more sexual experience than me. It's embarrassing. Do you want me to brush my teeth? Oh, God. This is crazy. Nancy? It's terrible. It's wrong. Nancy? Yes? Come have a dance at me. I, I guess I'm frustrated. Is Leo Grand your real name? Thinking about all the places I should have been by now. No, I simply don't understand why you're doing this. This to save up for our college? Oh, how wonderful. Are you really? No. <laughs> I've always been ashamed of my body. Your body's beautiful. I wish you could see that. Everyone wants something different. I don't judge my clients, lest they're total arseholes. <laughs> I've never done anything interesting in my life. You're the only adventure I've ever had. What's the oldest person you've ever done it with? 82. 82? Yes. 82? Nancy. Okay, I'm feeling a bit better now. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Brian Mason. He's an editor and a whole lot more. Recently, he completed the editing for a new film, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. We also talk a little bit about some previous works like 52 Tuesdays and the documentary Shut Up, Little Man. I hope you enjoyed the interview. So you are one of these rare birds where you have credits in producing, camera and electrical department, directing, writing, acting, just all of these bits. I mean, how did you get into the business and how did you become this jack of all trades? I started out in film via skateboarding. My, I grew up skateboarding and one summer a, a group of us who were kind of hanging out and skating all the time decided to hire a video camera. It was back in the VHSC days, so the mini VHS tapes. So we rented a camera, like a rent to buy kind of scheme, and we just filmed ourselves mostly to kind of try and figure out how to make tricks that we weren't able to do. Like, where do I put my foot? Why can't I never get that board to flip this way or whatever? That's how it started. And then over that summer, I just kind of really enjoyed the process of filming. And then at the end of the summer, we gave the camera back. We had to give the camera back. But just before we did, I sat down with two, like a VHS deck and the camera and did a like a play, record, pause, pause, record, play, like, oh, yeah. made, like an edit of our time over the summer and on all the tricks and put together a really kind of... Um, rudimental rudimentary what's the right word dodgy rudimentary, um, yeah. skateboarding video yeah. <laughs> dodgy um, works yeah 
Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. That's kind of where it started for me. And then, and then I was at university and I realized I, I was studying maths and chemistry and psychology and I, I was doing a science degree, but one, uh, one topic I could do, which was non-science-based. So I was like, oh, well, you know, there's a film course. And that, well, I loved movies and sort of had a very brief encounter with making something. And I really enjoyed that. So I'll, I'll kind of follow that up. And just as it happened, the, the lecturer in film was so much more interested and interesting than any of my lecturers in any other topic. And, and this guy was full of passion and interest and love for what he was doing and it, and it just kind of caught the bug there and I just for a start I was just interested in it and um and then I started making things and I didn't even realize until after I came out of university I'd never really considered the fact that I could get paid for doing this thing which I really enjoyed doing it was just like oh wow <laughs> okay someone's gonna give me money to do this thing that I really love through that process of study I kind of didn't gravitate necessarily towards one particular department. So in that time, I, I, I tried all the things like lighting, sound recording, cinematography, editing, directing. And I think I never, I didn't want or feel like I needed to, to make a choice, particularly about which one or whatever I was going to do. It was more, I was just more interested in making films. And then, yeah, I just managed to kind of keep those balls in the air, I guess, to a certain extent, you know, just as different projects came through or, or different ideas that I was interested in making, some of them I would produce with other people almost always. I've only directed a couple of things, but mostly nowadays focus on cinematography and editing. So it kind of has, it has kind of filtered down into, into more specialized uh, version of events, but yeah, I still, I'm still open, open to doing whatever on projects. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the TV work that you've done over the years? Because I'm not familiar with things like fucking Adelaide. Very tired of that one. So we live in a city called Adelaide. It's, it's one mile square city, like the city centre. There's a million people that live in Adelaide and Greater Adelaide, which is a much bigger area. And as such, there's is probably you know the idea of degrees of separation. There's probably one and a half degrees of separation from anyone to anyone in Adelaide. So it's there's this kind of a bit of a catch cry, really, when when something happens and you're like, well, oh, yeah, I know that person. It's like, of course you do. Fucking Adelaide. It's like <laughs> you know, like everyone just kind of knows everyone to a certain extent or, or, or pretty close to knowing everyone. So we made a series for ABC, the, the local Australian broadcaster, called Fucking Adelaide. Cause it, and it was kind of exploring a family that the mother had decided to sell the family home. So all the kids who were living kind of here, there and everywhere around the country and around the world can't come back to Adelaide and revisit their kind of hometown and spend time together while sorting through the house and figuring out who gets what. And, and it's kind of, it was really fun. That series, it, it was a good exploration of family in a small town. And, and I guess all those tensions that arise when, when siblings come back together. Other TV work, I edited a series called The Hunting, which was like a four by one hour drama series about sexting, really, and the, the repercussions of, of that going wrong in a high school and, you know, dealing with the parents and that, that was, that was super interesting. And then a comedy series called Aftertaste, which is about a celebrity chef, like a Gordon Ramsay type of character, like a big ego guy who gets cancelled and, and again comes back to Adelaide. It's a recurring theme here. 
<laughs> comes back to Adelaide and with his tail between his legs and kind of tries, tries to reinvent himself and see how he fits in the world nowadays. We just we just shot and edited the second series of that. So yeah, I don't I don't do a lot of TV work, but there is there is you know it kind of bubbles in between features and and TV. And I still do work in um, feature length documentaries occasionally as well. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's interesting that you kind of bounce back and forth between not just TV work and films, but you've got the documentaries in there as well. I think my first exposure to your work was actually Shut Up Little Man, which I had been hearing about that tape and had heard that tape. It's it's kind of the theme of the movie, right? I've been hearing about it and heard the tape so many times in so many years. So the documentary was this revelation. I'm so curious how you got involved in that. I guess it's prudent to say when I, when I finished university, I started working a lot with Sophie Hyde, who's my partner, and, and we make a lot of work together. But also Matthew Bate and Rebecca Summerton, the four of us studied together, and we started a company called Closer Productions. And the Matthew Bate, he found similar to you. He'd heard these tapes and was kind of curious, like, what is what is this? Like, what's the story here with these two old men kind of, you know, fighting and, and yelling at each other? What's the relationship? What's the story? So he dived into that world and, and sort of researched and tried to find what was happening and what the history of it was. He got really excited. It was like, oh, I think there's a really interesting exploration here. There's a film here. So he um, asked, asked me to come on board and, um, and yeah, shoot that film and, and then edit it with him as well. Yeah, it's, it, was a, it was a really enjoyable experience. In fact, that was we were making two feature-length documentaries at the same time, and that was they were the first two long-form pieces that we made in the company. It was that and a film called Life in Movement. Moving from short-form to long-form is a, a really interesting jump because, you know, there's sort of different considerations in terms of narrative and how long uh, the arcs of stories and how, like, how long a sequence will last and all of those things that kind of come into play. So it was a really good learning curve, both of those films, to go, oh, how do we, you know, translate what we understand from storytelling from short form into longer form? And we were kind of cutting them both at the same time. So we, were, we would work on a, a one-month block on Shut Up, Little Man, and then go and work on Life and Movement for a month and then come back and, and, and back and forth until we kind of got to the end of both of them. And it was a really interesting process because – Having that space, like just putting pause for for a few weeks while you go and completely get your head into another project and then coming back, when you look at it after a month of working on something else, you see it really uh, differently or, you know, you see it with fresh eyes. And that was a, yeah, super useful way to do it. A little bit, a little mad, but (laughs) useful in a lot of ways as well. So we try to do that now with all our projects, not not to edit two big ones at the same time, but to kind of work in into the post-production schedule breaks, even just for a week to go and, and, and work on other things and think about different things and then come back and look at it fresh. It, it affords you a good perspective. How do you keep all your thoughts organized when it comes to your editing? I mean, what kind of tools do you use and, and how do you actually kind of lay out this is what belongs where? My thoughts are seldom organized. Oftentimes in documentary in particular, we use carding system. So you, you would put, you would write this each scene on a card and you put it on the wall. That's all the way from an abbreviated one-liner of what the scene is to quite a detailed description of what the scene is and what happens in the screen, in the scene. And you put that on, on the wall and you put it in the order you think it's going to work. And then you kind of go ahead and cut that 
and then you go, oh, something's not working in the second act there. What do we need to do? And sometimes you just go straight to the edit and you try and rearrange it in there. And sometimes you just go to the wall and go, oh, okay. So what happens if we put this cut, like this scene before that one? Oh, but then we're not going to get that. Oh yeah, but we, then we could put this scene here and you start, there's, there's something around that kind of process of removing it from the technology of the edit and just going like to cards on a wall. It can really help. So that is one tool we use, but really the, the main secret tool or, or, or thing we use within the company is each other. There's four of us that kind of um, own and run the company and we very much show each other our, the works in progress and we're all relatively harsh, I guess, with each other and with like a feedback and just like, oh, that bit makes no sense. So that, you know, like kind of pretty cutting on a level, which is hard to deal with when you first come into it, but it is actually like really useful because what it means is you rather than reading that sort of feedback from a critic or something when you're done, you're, you're hearing it from each other. So, on, on so, I mean, not to say like we get everything right by any means, but certainly having that level of critique and, and, and you know, leveling those criticisms at each other as we're going is very useful because it lets you kind of go, ah, oh, right, that's not making any sense to you, that bit, why? I should do. Maybe you're not getting that bit over there. Okay, let's go have another look at that scene and see if we can... The thing that we thought was really clear in that scene, let's just see if we can make it even clearer. So by the time you get to that scene, it actually makes sense. So yeah, that feedback process, that kind of collaboration is really the main tool we use to uh, keep our thoughts organized or, or make the best edit we can, I guess. Well, you mentioned Sophie Hyde earlier and you've worked with her so many times. Can you tell me a little bit about that relationship when she's the director and you're the editor? So Sophie and I started working together pretty well straight out of university and we started working on documentaries and a lot of live performance stuff like theatre companies would employ us to document their shows or dance companies and we just really enjoyed working together and we, we sort of started, started yeah, like, like 2001, yeah, 2001 and yeah, we're still working together as much as we can. We kind of really enjoy the, the collaboration and the... I guess having that much of a shared history, there's a lot of shorthand, you know, you're going into a project and you kind of know each other really well and you know what you're looking for or you kind of can short track conversations really well. Oftentimes when Sophie and I work together, I work both as a cinematographer and editor and I love that because you jump on at pre-production, oftentimes when the script is is done or, or pretty close to being done and you go, so in pre-production you're you're talking about what you think it's going to be and what are your references and what do you hope it turns out like and then you go all the way into production where you're trying to then achieve the things that you thought it was going to be or you hoped it was going to be but also trying to be open to what it actually is and what you find and then all the way through into the edit as as the editor and all the way through post-production to delivery where you kind of go, okay, well, we, we hoped it was going to be this. And then when we were shooting, it looked like it might be that. But now, oh, it's actually this. So that kind of, that process of, of evolving or, or being open to what the project actually is and making the best of it with the material you manage together on set, kind of being involved from, from the start all the way through, I really love. I think it's a great um, it's a great way to, to work because you feel like you're co-creating on, on some level. Uh, so, yeah, Sophie and I work that way together, and we really enjoy it. So the first documentary I saw of yours was Shut Up, Little Man, and then the first narrative I saw was 52 Tuesdays, which was, uh-huh. gosh, what, 
nine years ago now, but wow, what a movie. Yeah, that was a really interesting film. You know, just quick history on it. It was a process film set up to be set and shot every Tuesday, every week for a year. So 52 Tuesdays. And yeah, that was, that was, it was a super low budget film and it was great. That was like, like that was our first narrative feature. And um, I guess on some level it has documentary elements because you, you're, you're cast. I mean, the main character of the film is a, uh, starts as a 15 year old and ends as a 16 year old. So like that, at that time in your life, you're changing. And I guess what, she went through in that year physically and her changing we couldn't um fake that with the budget we had you know like that was there's a kind of reality to that which is it's really interesting to to track on screen but the what the main thing that was like amazing interesting fascinating about that film was the process like being able to like so our weeks kind of ran sophie and matt matt cormac there's another matthew that works in in the company would write and they would kind of, they were sort of writing as, as we went as well. So they would kind of deliver a, the, all the week's scenes on a Wednesday. And then on the Thursday, we would rehearse with the actors and look for locations and think about what props and, and what costumes and all of those things that we needed. And then Friday would be location hunting and continuing with that process of like I just said, the props and, and all of those things. And then and then come Monday would be another rehearsal and then we'd shoot on the Tuesday and then the Wednesday would be the next week scenes. Okay, let's start looking at those and what they are. And then as we went, we started to edit as well. So as Sophie and Matt were writing, I would be in the edit suite assembling the scenes from last week and we would look at, okay, well, how's the story working and how are these characters tracking? And so it was this kind of live organic filmmaking process like as the year went we kind of just kept kept churning through every week and it was like learning as we went like and we you know unlike so in a normal schedule you would there's a main house in that in that film and where the where um billy's mother who's transitioning to become billy's father live and you know you would you would schedule everything at that house to be to be shot in one block right because that filmmaking wise that's logical and it makes sense and it's a good use of resources but not in this process in this process we would go to the house and you would light it and set it and get everything sorted and shoot the scene and then three weeks later you're back to the house and you're like oh i've got to light it and set it and do it all again right but which sounds like a pain but actually it was really interesting because i would look at material from three weeks ago and go, okay how do i do that better like how do i light that better how do we cover that scene more interestingly or, or whatever so there was this really good sort of filmmaking loop that was happening for the whole year of like trying to figure out how to make less mistakes i guess as we went is kind of the way i look at it which is the way i look at filmmaking anyway is kind of like i think it's um it's what i find really interesting about it is that i don't know that you can never make the perfect film per se. I think you're always, there's always going to be things that you wish you did better. I'd like to think that wasn't the case, but in reality, I think it is. And and I think if you're doing your job right, you're trying to make less mistakes every time you go out. Like, you know, every, every time you do it, you're trying to get a few less things wrong. <laughs> that's, that's definitely the way I look at it. And I always think that's interesting too, with like, I think about my, like my favorite films, and they're films that some people hate, you know, or, or like have no time for. And I find that really interesting about the medium, right? Is like you can have a film that you absolutely love, like Fight Club's an example. Like that's on my favorite films. And some people just like don't 
have any time for that film but it's a film i really enjoyed at the time and i still like it i still watch watch it back i mean it's not again it's not perfect by any means but it's a really interesting cinematic achievement as a film and to think that had such an impact on my on my life as a young person seeing that film being like oh you can do all of that in one film that's amazing and then some people like oh, i hate that film it's like oh, okay there you go that's that's amazing that kind of frees you in a way you're like oh no matter what you make someone's going to hate it right you just have to do the best thing that you can that you think is good and hopefully some people will engage and like it fight club that you know the twist now that you've seen it the first time that you can watch it over and over again and still enjoy the film it's not like it's ruined for you yeah agreed in fact some of some of it's more interesting to watch when you know like when you when, when you know that it's you watch it back and you're like, oh that's so clever so tell me about good luck to you, Leo Grand, because you're talking about sets. And I mean, this is 90, 95% set all in the same location. Was that a COVID consideration or why is that? How did this come about? So Leo Grand started very much in the mind of the writer, Katie Brand, and she was considering in the midst of the COVID lockdowns in the UK, or maybe she was in Germany, I'm not sure what kind of story you can tell you know like what what's a contained story that would be interesting to tell given constraints of the world at, at the time so the idea of kind of two people in one room uh, exploring intimacy i think was a really appealing one and one that at a time where you kind of there wasn't a lot of meeting new people and and kind of interacting with new people watching two people kind of get to know each other or try to get to know each other as kind of has a certain appeal. So the project came to Sophie at a really early draft stage and it had just two meetings, the first two meetings, uh, but, but Emma Thompson was attached. So it was, it was kind of like, here's the concept, here's an early draft. And it's a story of a woman who is recently widowed, who realizes she's never had good sex in her life. So she employs a young sex worker to try and remedy that, basically. And so, you know, the concept is, is simple and interesting, but Emma Thompson's going to play the woman. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's, okay, that's something in that, right? So, so then Sophie and Katie worked, I think the shooting draft was draft 10 or 11. So they did a lot of, a lot of back and forthing, like to kind of flesh it out and bring more things to it and uh, develop it out in, into a screenplay that felt like it was, it, it kind of evolved out of the first, the first version was just the two of them in the, in the room and, and kind of evolved into a meeting outside of the room and like the beginning of the film, which is we meet Leo as he's getting ready to go to the first meeting. So there was kind of it, the scope of it opened out a little bit, but as you said, it's still kind of 90%, probably a little more in, in the one room with the two characters, which was a huge challenge coming to it. Like, you know, I was terrified. It's kind of like, oh, how do we keep two people in one room interesting for like, you know, like visually, like edit wise, like how do we kind of um, uh, keep, how, how are we going to maintain a tension or an interest that you're going to want to keep watching these two people bang around this one room? <laughs> And that kind of kept us on edge the whole time, really. It's interesting, too, because you use different parts of the room. The first meeting takes place, you know, mostly in one area and then the second mm -hmm. kind of in another. So it's interesting that you even break up the one space into several different locations. Yeah, I think that was that was a conscious choice to try and 
Like, so the, the dialogue certainly early in the film is, is pretty um, banter-like. It's pretty sharp and they kind of bounce off each other a lot. So we kind of knew coming into it that to start off with, you're going to be interested in the characters. You're going to be interested in the dialogue. We don't need to do, like, we don't need to crane in from the roof and, like, the camera constantly moving. Like, we kind of were like, okay, let's, like, have a little bit of discipline around this. Let's start simple and, and as you said, like, keep it, in one area so the, the first meeting is they do move around a little bit but they're a lot a big chunk of it is kind of contained around the couch so it's kind of like okay let's just let's do that let's just let that be and really focus on the performance and fo- focus on the dialogue and and what's going on for these two characters and then yeah as each meeting progresses and, and develops we tried to evolve the look a little bit and also where they were in the room and, and, and think of different ways to use the space that translated to camera work as well. Like that when we first meet the characters, Nancy is very nervous and held and unsure. So the camera is, is quite still and observing it's, it's not fluid and free at all. It's, it's, it's sort of reflecting where these guys are at. They're kind of sussing each other out. So that, um, And then the second meeting, they're getting a little a little more comfortable. The barriers are coming down a little bit. So there's a little bit of camera movement. And then certainly there's a dance scene, which there's a little steady cam in there. And we, we start to move around a little bit as they get a little more free with each other. And then come the third meeting, the barriers are down to a certain extent. So we're all handheld there. We're kind of, um, the way we treated the camera kind of evolved as they're the feeling of their relationship evolved. So, which is good in theory, but it was actually quite a challenging thing to do because we shot the film chronologically. So we started day one of the shoot with, you know, him knocking on the door and walking in. And then, you know, as the, the their meetings progresses, as the shoot went along. And of course, there's only four scenes in the film. So each scene is, you know, upwards of half an hour. You know, the first scene we shot for five days and it's all well and good in pre-production to go, okay, we're making this choice that so the camera's not going to move and it's going to be like it's held and still because they're nervous with each other. But then the, to have the discipline to do that for, for the first five days of the shoot where everyone's watching the monitor, it's like they're just locked off still shots. This is really boring. It's like it's actually, it was actually kind of hard to commit to that, that notion or that idea, which is, a, I guess, a conceptual idea to realize that on the shoot. But it was worth it. It was a good challenge to do. Well, how do you find the rhythm of the editing in a situation like that? Finding the rhythm of the edit was the thing in this film, like the rhythm of the dialogue and the kind of pacing and the feeling of, of their kind of banter. A lot of that was kind of as it was played on set, like Sophie and, and Daryl and Emma, the actors, they rehearsed, they had a week of rehearsal. And by the time they came out of that week, they were, it was feeling pretty good. Like we did a table read and it was funny. Like it was just like just them sitting there doing the lines. It was really funny. I was like, oh, okay, this is great. This is, you know, if we don't mess this up, this should be, it should be pretty entertaining, this film. And then, and then of course coming to film it and, and there was a certain rhythm and a certain pattern to the dialogue. And then we came into the edit. It was like, okay, you just, you, to a certain extent, you want to be true to that. But naturally, when you kind of get in and you start cutting, like, oh, actually, this section's a little slow and there's a bit too much dialogue here. And so we made some trims and you kind of tighten. And But a lot of the film, in, in terms of the edit, was really trying to get out of the way of or not mess up what was there. There's one particular scene where at the end of the second meeting where they're sitting at the end of the bed and, and they're talking about, and Leo's talking about sex work. We cut that 
scene pretty early in, in the edit and we were like, oh, that's feeling good, that scene. And then we watched it again on the next run through and we we're like, this is the scene. This is this is the scene where we every time we watch it, we're going to want to make it quicker. We're going to want to cut out the space. We're going to want to clamp it down. Let's not because it's it really works on the first viewing. And we I think we've made that mistake or, or you know, trying to learn that as we go that naturally when you get to the end of an edit you've watched the film like a thousand times so you kind of if there's any space or there's any kind of contemplation or or the rhythm slows it's really easy to want to cut that out but in in that one scene we really like we kind of put the barriers up and went no we're going to protect this scene this that works really well as it is and every time and we get feedback and of course after a certain point the the producers and the investors start going well that scene you know we've could that move a little quicker? And we're like, yeah, definitely could, but it's not going to. It's like we're going to try and, you know, we're going to try and let that be because when we just kind of try to hold on to that, when we first got through it and that first version of it, it worked really well. And we're like, okay, let's keep that. Yeah. It sounds like discipline was kind of the watchword between let's not move the camera around too much. And then also let's keep those edits languid. Let's keep that rhythm a little bit more free and easy than tighten it down. This film in particular, I think because everything's so stripped back, it's two people in one room, It's there's nowhere to hide. You, you know, there's no chases and explosions and all of that stuff. Like it's kind of, you know, we barely even away from either of their faces for very long. You know, you're just very much with these two characters. So all the elements were on display. You know, your, your sound design, your music, your camera work, the editing, like all of those things, the performances, hero and the thing that we were really trying to focus on. So, yeah, there was a discipline around it. There had to be a discipline around it, I think, to be true to the material and and to find that rhythm and and keep that rhythm kind of working. I don't know how if we were entirely successful, but that was certainly what we were trying to do. Because of it being in one location for so much of it it reminded me a little bit of a stage play but it reminded me of a really good stage play it reminded me of same time next year so that way that our characters shift you know you talked about the 52 tuesdays and how you see the characters change it also felt like there was a real change in our characters as we moved through each of those four major scenes that's good i'm unfamiliar with that play but really and do enjoy process driven things and 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 that kind of the restrictions so it's interesting like going back to 52 tuesdays the kind of restrictions we put on ourselves there to to be you know we're going to shoot every tuesday every week for a year i think having those guidelines or those boundaries are really um can be incredibly frustrating but also give rise to really interesting creativity for want of a better word like you know solutions to issues you know there's in that film there's one scene one one week we're at billy's dad's house and she's looking out the window and then it's written the next week we cut and she's still there looking out of the window right and so we go there the first week and i'm like hey this is all we're shooting for these two weeks is like standing in this one space so just bring a different outfit and then we'll film the two weeks and so feels like that's not how it happens we're not doing that so we like literally yeah set it all up skip the shot go away have a week do editing whatever whatever come back the next week set up the same shot do it again it's like having those restrictions it um i I think it's good i think it's really interesting to have kind of parameters there's always parameters whether it's your budget or your 
schedule is often the parameter, the thing that really kind of hems you into a lot of decisions. And that was certainly the case on this film when Leo Graham, we had 19 days to shoot the film. So it was very quick. It was three six day weeks. So yeah, it was Monday to Saturday. Uh, and then on the, the seventh day, on the Sunday, we, Sophie and Emma and Daryl and myself would go back to the set and block through and rehearse the next week's worth of material. Because the schedule was so short, we were shooting, I think the least amount of pages we did in a day is, was five or six, six. And r- roughly it's one minute of screen time per page is kind of how it plays out. So it's kind of, yeah, like six minutes a day was the minimum up to about, I think we had one 11 or 12 page day. So 11 or 12 minutes worth of material in a day. So that, that gave rise to an amount of challenge as well, because if you have two performers and they have 10 minutes worth of material to do, they were wanting to run it as a 10 minute chunk. Fair enough. So then the challenge was, well, how do we invent shots that can hold for 10 minutes? So like if it's a close up on someone or like, you know, a medium close up, like how do we, and they move, they start at the couch and they move to the bed and then to the bathroom, whatever. Like, how do we kind of just keep that? Like, how do we invent shots that will hold for that whole passage? So that was a good, another good challenge. Not to get too nerdy or anything, but what do you actually cut on? What's, what uh, kind of software do you use? Yeah, I cut on Adobe Premiere. I kind of worked on uh, Final Cut Pro for years and then Avid for a little while and then to Premiere. And I really, um, yeah, I enjoy cutting on Premiere. It, it kind of, it works really well for kind of any project you want to throw at it. Like we made a film called Sam Clunky's Time Machine, which was a lot of archival and Lots of different formats, lots of different frame rates and sizes. And the great thing about Premiere is you can just put them all on one timeline and it will sort it out for you. It'll, it'll just let you play. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really, yeah, it's a powerful system and I really like using it. Have you always been on offline editors or did you actually do some like, you know, hand cutting? Was that even before the flying race head kind of thing that you had to worry about breaking control track when you're making those skate videos? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> VHS. Oh man. I'm glad that that didn't last long that era in terms of when I came into it. When I was studying film, we did cut a couple of super eight films. Like we started more, more to learn the discipline of it. I think rather than out of necessity, like there was digital cameras at that time. So we, we certainly could have been shooting and, and cutting in digitally, which we were as well. But just as one of the exercises was, okay, you've got two, three minute rolls of super eight, go out and shoot a one minute film. Uh, but it has to be all analog. Yeah. You shoot it, you get it developed, you get it back, you've got to cut it, you've got to splice it up and, you know, tape the, the, the edits together and the whole thing. And it was, yeah, it was great. I loved it. It was hard because obviously, you, you know, you need to be super precise and you need to like not get bits of hair and dust and stuff on, on the, uh, on the tape as you're putting it and splicing the two tiny bits of film together. But yeah, it was, it was really good to learn and, and to think it makes you consider an edits in a, in a different way, because much like shooting on film where you rehearse a lot, cause you, you know, you've only got a certain amount of film stock, so you can only 
you know, you, you might get two takes for every shot. You don't want to just kind of start rolling straight away. You want to go, okay, let's rehearse. What does the shot look like? Is is that right? Is it, you know, and then director will come in and give notes to actors. Okay, let's rehearse again. Okay, is that feeling right? Yeah, we're getting there. Okay, let's go for a take. So there's a different process and discipline around it necessarily than, than shooting digitally where you can kind of just, you roll, oftentimes you roll on rehearsals because you're like, well, we're all here, we're all set up, and maybe it's going to be good straight away. So let's let's go. Working with film was is a different thing, and certainly in the edit, that is true as well. You have to really consider, like, you don't put an edit down and go, oh, I'm just going to adjust that a little bit. That's hard to do, and you, and you start, and you certainly can't, you can make shots shorter relatively easily, but to kind of find the frames you've cut off and make it just that little bit longer is difficult. So you don't, it makes you define at least your choices to what you think is going to work makes you really consider each of those decisions a lot more, which was a good, good discipline and a good, again, and a good process to learn to figure out like, oh, the people were cutting films like this for years. That's amazing to me. And it's amazing what editors would understand from looking on, on the, the viewer where you've got the film spooled up and you go forward a little bit and back a little bit where you put in your, your edit points and just, like learning the like there they there they blink there i'm gonna get back a bit i'm gonna put my edit there okay good and just learning how those things work in a really kind of definitive or analog or more kind of uh locked in you know it's kind of like those decisions don't come lightly because you know it's i mean it's not permanent because you could always retape but my God, you don't want to. Exactly right. It's like, yeah, it's a more permanent decision. So I was like, okay, there's weight on this decision. Whereas nonlinear editing, you can try a bunch of stuff, right? You, you know, it's, it's non-destructive. So once you've got it in the system, you can go ahead and, oh, we'll try it like this. Maybe let's try and start the scene with that shot. I put that there. I see what that does. And, you know, and that has given rise to how films are made nowadays and, and, and thank goodness for it. But, yeah, very different, different considerations and different disciplines for sure. From, from working on different forms and different disciplines, it's, it's very much like I think that's a big difference between feature-length work and television. So television is often very quick. Like, you know, like you don't have a lot of time to consider. You kind of you put it together and then you maybe get a couple of revisions of a scene and that's it. So you kind of, you know, it's, it's good and bad. Like it's good because it hones your instincts and you, you have to trust as you're putting it together the first time, you are maybe a little more acutely aware of like the decisions you're making again because you, you I don't I don't get to try a bunch of different stuff here. I, I can try a couple of things, but what I what I think is going to work kind of kind of has I have to make that work because I don't get to totally rethink it. Like unless the wheels fall off, you don't. You just kind of like if it can't, you have to get it working pretty quickly because you don't have a heap of time to go back to the start and try again. So, which is different, like in, you know, in feature films, you oftentimes schedules are a little, they have a little more space, especially in, in the edit. And you have a little more time to consider and reconsider and, and make sure it's kind of doing the best thing it can do. Whereas television, yeah, you're very much just like cranking it out. Like let's get it done and, and get it going. So, yeah. It doesn't sound like you are afraid of taking on many projects at the same time. So what do you have working these days for a long time we took as many projects on as we could because we were working in a kind of low budget realm so you kind of know one project was kind of keeping the whole company running it was kind of a bunch of had to be a bunch of different things happening at the same time to keep enough 
revenue coming in to kind of make the whole thing keep going. So I kind of learned that way and learned that working on a lot of different things at one time, as daunting as it can be, is also kind of plausible. Like you can do it. So yeah, so I, at the moment, there's three films that Sophie has at various stages of, um, well, they're actually, they're, they're, all the scripts are ready. It's just various stages of, of financing and getting actors cast attached to, to get those happening. One of them is set in Mexico. One of them is set in London and it's a, a period piece. And one of them is uh, set in Amsterdam mostly and partly in, in Adelaide. So, yeah, like I think any one of those is is set to go next. And so that'll be the, the next sort of feature length project, I think. Just on Monday, I started a new edit with Matthew Bate, who uh, made Shut Up Little Man. It's his feature length documentary called Fighting for Hakeem, which is a film about a Bahrainian soccer player who was involved with the Arab Spring and, and was tortured in Bahrain. So he fled Bahrain and came to Australia, got refugee status in Australia and was living and playing soccer here for many years. And then he got married and, and flew to Thailand for his honeymoon. And when he landed in Thailand, the Thai authorities arrested him and put him in jail. And the Bahrainian government were trying to extradite him back to Bahrain. And the local soccer community here in Australia, led by Craig Foster, a um, ex-national team player, they started like grassroots people campaign to save Hakeem. So it's the story of this small group of people taking on the Bahrainian royal family and the Thai royal family and FIFA one of the biggest sporting bodies in the world to try and save this kid's life. So it's a really, um, it's really interesting. Like it's, I'm fascinated to, uh, to jump on board that one. It's, it's one of these stories of hope in a way, because it's, it's about a small group of people banding together for the right reasons, taking on powers that be and structures that you think are immovable. You know, these things in the world that feel like they're too big to be able to affect change with and it's um yeah so it's yeah it's a really good story i'm looking forward to it too in fact i, I was just um traveling with the, the release of leo we were kind of we were in london and, and new york and around the place and my travel companion was the book there's a book written called fighting for hakeem so i was reading that before starting the edit to kind of you know learn the story and 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 get a shape of we're going into so yeah i'm very much looking forward to uh, to getting about it and helping tell that story well mr mason thank you so much for your time it was great talking with you yeah i appreciate it thanks mark good and i really enjoy your podcast so yeah keep up the good work and just a gigolo, gigolo. and everywhere i go the people gigolo. know the part i'm playing gigolo, gigolo, gigolo. Paid for every dance, selling its romance. Oh, what they see. There will come a day, and youth will pass away. What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know they'll say just a gigolos. Life goes on without me. And just a gigolo, everywhere I go. People know the part I'm playing Paid for every dance Selling each romance Oh, what this is And there will come a day A 
youth will pass away What will they say about me? When the end comes, I know there's just a trickle dose Life goes on without me, cause